Hi, friend. Hi, friend. I'm Michael Cassidy. And I'm Laura Holloway. And this is the Actors Helpline. <laughs> oh, God. Laura, I have a question for you. Ooh, I can't wait. Do you um, want to call in? What? Yeah, here. Should you call in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All you have to and do is click a, that little microphone. That's a great. That's a great. Super easy. Yeah. So, guys, if you want to ask a question on the Actors Helpline, and I do right now, so I'm going to call in. Mm-hmm. But you go to theactorshelpline.com. You click mm-hmm. that microphone. We don't want anything mm-hmm. from you. You can put an alias in and just ask your yep. question, and then we'll play it on the podcast. Yep. But this is this is me asking a question, so here goes. Hello. Oh, <clears throat> okay. sorry. I thought. Did you Hello? answer? Hey, the actor's helpline. Hey, this is Human Resources. Hey, this is Michael oh. Cassidy, your co-host. Um, oh, hey, Michael. My question you? for you, Laura, is: When you first wanted to be an actor, oh gosh, did you? How old were you, first of all? Uh, a fetus. Okay, you were a fetus when you wanted to be an actor, and mm-hmm. was it because you were doing? That's my earliest memory, anyway. <laughs> Could have been zygote. <laughs> <laughs> and did you No, for real I was very it's as long as I can remember I, re- I remember being probably from what I from like where we were I was probably three three-ish four maybe when I was like that's what I'm gonna do for sure there was no question it was just always there and what was your yeah. what was your introduction to it what 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 spurred that what um, at what external circumstance I, spurred that clearly you've never read my IMDB bio Michael <laughs> It's true. It's true. <clears throat> it's in. Uh, I was uh, the movie. The movie Annie. The watching the movie the, Annie. Yeah. Okay. My parents say it was earlier than that. My parents say that it, commercials used to just captivate me, and I would act them out and perform them. And then, but when I remember consciously thinking, "Oh yeah, no, that's it. Like that's my job," was when I saw the film Annie. So TV and films were. Your first sort of like, I want to do that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But musical, but a musical. So, you know, for me, it was theater and the experience of doing theater, like doing live performance in a school play and then in a community theater and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I share that with our guests today. That's why I was sort of thinking about Mm -hmm. it because I was, I was, I was thinking how disconnected I am from the thing that I got into it for and admittedly at mm. 14 like your life changes it's not that's not a bad thing mm-hmm. but I, I have ended up doing stuff that I never had any plans to do and our guest today Laura has done an entire career of the stuff that I thought I was setting out to do when I started this thing in a lot of ways and I admire him for that so much he has lived a life unlike any other actor that I have ever come across. He has traveled the world and made a living in live performance for almost 30 years. He is an actor, a writer, a director, and a clown. He was a blue man in Blue Man Group for 22 years. He worked as an assistant director on two Cirque du Soleil shows on cruise ships in Europe, and he can currently be seen as the gazillionaire in the Absinthe Show at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. Welcome to the Actors Helpline, Michael Rahal. Thank you, guys. <clears throat> I'm very excited to be here. Uh, that You asking Laura that question got me thinking about the two very specific instances that I remember that m- not necessarily made me think I wanted to have being an actor be my job, but I remember recognizing that I was different than other kids in this way. So one was I went with my parents, my parents in like 1970, let's say 1977, I was probably four years old. My parents took us to a theatrical production, an adaptation of Ricky Tikki Tavi. Do you know what that is? Ricky Tikki Tavi is an old African folktale about a mongoose who like has adventures, blah, blah, blah. So like in that show, there were people in these big, they had puppets and these big costumes and it was very stylized and very theatrical. And I remember thinking like, how does this exist? How is it possible that there, that there are people who just like do that and that's their job? And then the other thing that happened is when I was in the fourth grade, I think, um, 
I was in a, I was in like a, you know, I was in grade school and we were doing a play and the play was, I can't remember some like Oklahoma history thing. And there was a narrator character and the teacher was making us audition to be in the play. Right. And we're, I was what, eight, nine. And uh, the teacher was making us audition. And there was a character who was the narrator of the show. And he was like an old prospector and his name was old Joe. I remember it really well. And she was making all these other kids get up and read for it. You know, they were all reading and none of them. I remember thinking like, why isn't any of them acting like an old man? Why isn't any of them? Why aren't any of them pretending to be an old prospector? Like, I know what an old prospector is. They want an old miner guy. So I got up there and I was like, here come the kids and everybody's walking down. And I got the part. And I, I remember that moment being like, what? why am I the only one who knew that that's what you had to do to get this thing? And then I, and from that point, you know, from when I was really young, my mom was putting me in like summer theater programs and there was a really thriving community theater. I grew up in Southern Oklahoma in a small town of about 20,000 people and or a small city. And uh, it had a really well-funded community theater and a really well-funded like children's theater camps. And I was just like in it all the time, like neck deep in it. And then when I was 14, I was working in one of the community theater shows. I was telling Michael, I was in this, I got cast as Eugene in a production of Brighton Beach Memoirs. And it's a show, it's a play, for those of you who don't know the play, it's a play that takes place in Brighton Beach. Uh, and it's this family of, of Jewish people and they're whatever, doing family shit. And so the character Eugene is the central character of the show. And he has all these monologues where he's interacting with the audience. And it's a lot of comedy. And I remember having the experience of like getting laughs. And then not only like, as we were doing the run of the show, like being in control of those laughs, feeling the wave of laughter and how to ride it and make it go into another one and make it go into another one. And like feeling that roll over and having some control over it and being like, whoa, this is really cool. And um, the director of that show uh, said like, hey Ben, this, you know, this could be your job if you want it to be your job. And I was, did not believe him at first. <laughs> but from then on, it was like off to the races. And I had to convince my father. My father wanted me to be an accountant. My father, God bless him, super supportive. My parents are wonderful. I love them. Uh, but he wanted me to be an accountant or he wanted me to go to business school. And when I was 17, I was in a production of The Elephant Man. And I was playing The Elephant Man. It's Ber Bernard Pomerantz's play where you don't wear any prosthetics. You just do it all with uh, your physicality to play the character. And um, I was like, okay, dad, I remember having this conversation with him where I was like, dad, I want to go to college for theater. And he said, no, you're going to go to college for business. You can study theater as a minor or whatever. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what, you come see the play. And if you think I'm bad, you tell me and I will go to business school. Oh my God. But if you think that I'm good and you think I, I'm not terrible, then you have to let me go to theater. Oh my God. School. Yeah. And I was like pushing my, all my chips in and I was like, this is it, you know, cause I was really I was really proud of the work I did in the show and really excited about it. And after the show, I remember him coming backstage and kind of smiling and being like, okay, okay, you can go to theater school. <gasps> oh my God. Wow. Where did you get that kind of confidence? Who knows? You just knew you were supposed to do this. Definitely. I was just like, look, yeah. if, yeah. you know, yeah. but I was willing to like, if he was like, oh yeah, this is, you're terrible. I probably would have believed him. Yeah. And gone to business school. You trusted him. And he Yeah, knew. I guess so, yeah. And you know, I, I, I have to say they're they're you know, I've I've never not had a job as an actor as an adult. So Wow. So Wow. wow. Who yeah. can say that? Yeah. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. You're it's just it's you. It's very crazy. I cannot believe how lucky I am. You know, the career that I've had has just been so consistent, which is a really stupid and ridiculous truth. I can't believe it's real. Can't believe it's my life. So Brighton Beach Memoirs was 36 years ago. Oh my God, that's insane. And like I said in the intro, you have traveled the world. Yeah. You have, there's a bunch of stuff that I cannot wait to talk to you about. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, but the first thing that, the, uh, the first question I have for you is, do you have an answer now for why you knew and could do the old prospector and the other kids didn't know or couldn't? I think that it's 
I mean, I think it boils down to just being as simple as there being a performer's instinct. You know how like when you're in a show and something goes sideways and you just keep going or like whatever, I, I, you know, I've been in a show, I was in a blue man show where I broke, I think I broke my hand or something during the show and just kept going, you know? that's that you just finish the show Mm -hmm. um it's Mm -hmm. that thing right that thing inside of you that says you know that the show must go on or whatever it's the thing that says like just keep doing the show and you're gonna be fine or like if i'm sick if i'm tired if i feel terrible if i'm not if i get to work if i get to the show uh whatever like putting the dressing room and i'm crying from extreme grief and loss and personal loss and then I get out on stage and everything is totally okay. Better than okay. Mm. That's the, yeah. that, that performer's instinct. I think that was like the germ of that when I was a kid, you know, just sort of coming mm-hmm. out, you put me up there and I'm, and it just comes out, <laughs> you know. God, you look so much like a prospector. <laughs> Especially my shoulders. How did you just know how to be a prospector? <laughs> did you know many prospectors? That's, yeah, it's the thing you can't teach. Yeah. I mean, I do truly believe that there is purpose inside each one of us that is screaming to get out. And like, whether it gets out or not has everything to do with what paths you take in your life, right? But it's always going to mm. be screaming to get out, whether you take the path to get it out or not. And so like, when there's, you know, when I was super young, it was just like leaping out of me. So how, how do you, how do you train someone who already has, what did you need to learn in order to go from, I can carry a show at 14 to <laughs> I can be, you know, until you started uh, getting professional uh, or more professional work. Like as a kid, as a kid, I had no idea. All I wanted to do was train though. All I wanted to do was train. I would take anything anybody would give to me. Where did you I, end up I ended going? up going to a school called Ohio University that's in Athens, Ohio. Um, it's a state school. I went there for a bunch of reasons. I, I think I was at the time, like, I mean, this is in the 1980s, you know, in Oklahoma. And I didn't have any access to, I didn't know that Juilliard existed. I didn't know that NYU existed. I didn't know about all these schools that are like, or, or, you know, USC or these schools that were basically funnels to a leg up in the industry. Right. Um, I didn't know that any of those places existed. And I, I, you know, I was just sort of young and also like a party kid and a skateboarder. And I, I just wanted to like find some place that felt like a cool place to be. And, and I wanted to work with a teacher who I thought was interesting and exciting. And the teacher there, the, the primary acting teacher there and the primary movement uh, teacher there I was super stoked about when I went there to audition and I met them there's a guy named Denny Dalen who was like a Stanislavski guy all the way and then the other uh, teacher there was a, a guy named William Fisher who is now the head of the theater department at Indiana University um, and he taught corporeal mime which is a postmodern mime technique from France created by this guy named Etienne de Cru. and uh, it's just like super abstract mime it's like if you take mime and viewpoints do you guys know what viewpoints are the and bogart yeah. viewpoints yeah it's like mime mixed with viewpoints basically and it was like so weird and rad and i was like i don't even know what this is but i've got to do it you know when you were when you were in undergrad and even in grad school because you, you also went to grad school yeah. but but did you i'm interested in sort of pulling the thread through of like imagine yourself at 21 and I stand in front of you on the campus of Ohio University and I say, you can have any career you want. Would you have said Jack Nicholson at that time? Or were you already like, no, I think I'll probably cover myself in paint and be in front of audiences my whole no, life? No, I wanted to do theater. I have to say that I, I think that learning corporeal mime and, and, and learning this very weird and abstracted version of performance and also the Ohio University had a really strong modern dance program as well. And I was like, I would go and watch classes there and sometimes take classes there and seeing all this like rad abstract art happening in real time and seeing people have a relationship with the audience and all that stuff like that turned me on more than anything. And, you know, we got mm-hmm. into, you know, there was a there was a telecommunications program there and we would do little short films with people and stuff. 
but I never got off on that. Like I never loved being in front of the camera. I felt too big, too weird. I felt uncomfortable. I didn't know how to be small. Uh, and it felt when I was being small, it felt like I was cheating myself in some weird way. For some reason, I just could not find any joy in it. Even at like 19, mm. I was like, this isn't fun at all. Like you're, you're asking me to be like hyper real in this moment with this person. And I'm just like, this sucks. I want to flip the table and like climb up the wall and just start screaming. <laughs> and like, that was it, you know? So like, if you'd asked me, I remember even in college, people asking me like, what do you want to do? You're going to move to New York or LA. And I was like, New York all the way. I'm a theater person. I'm moving to New York. I knew it then. And I think it was mostly like, because the experience of doing corporeal mime and, and learning what that felt like, I started to get turned on by doing things that didn't have any connection to realism. Because for me, mm. realism is film and television. Film and television can take you on a, can take you anywhere they want with a snap of a finger and they can hit you with a level of sort of verisimilitude of, of reality that you can't get anywhere else. You can't get that in theater, mm. you know? And that's what theater is for me. It like does a thing that TV and film cannot which is give, potentially alter the viewer's perception in real time in a room, just using light, sound, and bodies. And that's it, man. That for me is the deal. You then go to grad school and you went to grad school. Your grad school lines up perfectly with what you described you wanted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went to a graduate program that's in Denver called the National Theater Conservatory, and it no longer exists, unfortunately. Uh, it was a privately funded conservatory program for actors that was connected to the Denver Center Theater Company. At the time, they had a resident company uh, of actors who were called the Denver Center Theater Company, and it was about 15 actors, and they were in most of the shows. They kind of did everything. And they were all from New York or from LA, and they had moved to Denver to like be part of this theater company and have a full-time job. And, and that was an amazing thing for me to be able to witness as well, that you could like not live in New York or LA or Chicago. You live in Denver and make an equity wage and have a great life and own your apartment or your house or whatever and like be a worker among workers and like be a working class actor and like not do not also have like a survival job so that was a beautiful opportunity for me to witness that and that graduate program was three years long and it was we had a full tuition waiver so it was free and they accepted eight students wow. a year and they gave us a living stipend of $125 a week. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. And in, in return, our job in the first year was to be the house staff for all the theaters. Uh, so I was like cleaning up vomit and one at one time helped carry a dead body out of the theater. That was super exciting. Oh. Um, yeah. Had you, had you, no, it was a woman. It was it's such okay. a nightmare story. It was during a production of Romeo and Juliet, yeah, no, the huge no. thrust theater. And a woman in the audience collapsed and, and ultimately died. But oh, yeah, it was God. super gnarly. She was like, she That's was like awful. bleeding to death from hemorrhaging in her throat. And oh, yeah. And the, and the EM, Live and theater, the EMTs man. who showed up, there weren't enough of them. It was two guys. And so like me and another student uh, were literally on our hands and knees in blood, like helping them like move this woman while, while Tybalt and Mercutio are like having a sword fight. No. On the page. Dude. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my so, God. Live oh my theater. God. Enter at your own risk. Yeah. Uh, I digress. But so the first year we had to be the house staff for the shows. And then the second and third year was like a full on internship. And in the second year you understudied, uh, parts on the main stage shows. Um, and in the third year, you had the opportunity to audition for shows. Uh, and I mean, and did you, in your audition for this program, did you do some sort of act inside of like an invisible box? No, and pull out a no, it was, of just, flowers and... it was just monologues. Um, it was just like, okay. I did a Shakespeare monologue from measure for measure. And I did a Sam Shepard monologue from a one act called 4-H club. Now, Laura, the, I'm telling you, Michael, right now you are describing exactly what I thought I was going to do with my life from 18 to 28. Wow. You're describing. Yeah, sounds. I thought when I was in high school and I was in high school while you were in Denver, I'm a little younger than you. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I was like, I'm going to go to a, a very serious actor training program. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to go to a grad school that incorporates me into their thing. And then I'm going to become an acting 
teacher at a college and I'm going to do great theater in the night and I'm going to raise my family. And I, I, you were describing exactly what my plans were yeah. aside from the, um, the circus shit that you do. Yeah. Laura, do you, are you like, what's, what about you? I mean, I, honestly, listening to this, I'm thinking more about that. Mm-hmm. Just that I've known you, Cassidy, so long and heard, and I know what you, like you're, I'm listening to, to Ray Hall and I'm going, this is what my, this is my <laughs> 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 um, But also I'm, uh, I'm having a lot of like, um, I feel kind of jealous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a little jealous. Yeah. Like you knew what you mm. wanted and you went mm. after it. Yeah. And you happen to be really and good you, at it. <laughs> you happen to be really good at it and you got exactly what you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And like, I mean, I don't know if it's exactly, I mean, I, you know, I'm not trying to minimize any kind of struggles you've had because you're an actor and I know you've had them, but like. No, I've been very fortunate. I, 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 that's so I definitely awesome. acknowledge the power of magic because it's like, you know, something else at work, a right place, right time, whatever, just following the path as it presents itself. Sure. But you followed, I mean, I kept having, you know, I think it can be so challenging um, as an actor, probably any artist, right. Who from a young age is like, no, this is mm-hmm. it. This is me. This is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I think it can be so challenging to actually yeah. do it because it's, you know, everywhere you turn, there are people saying like, that's mm-hmm. stupid. Totally. Go to business school. And it, you know, and not to say, cause they love you. It's like, because they love you that they're saying like, Hey, I understand, but you know, only 16 people a year get into Juilliard. Um, so maybe you should have a backup plan, you know, that kind of a thing. And I was so influenced by that stuff that I didn't even get started with acting until I was well into my twenties. Mm. So it, you know, the, when I say jealous nowadays, really what I mean when I say jealous is like, um, I admire your perseverance and your dedication and I'm so happy for you that it, <laughs> it worked. Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. And I think it's such a great lesson for people yeah. listening too, who are early on in this journey. Like don't, you know, don't listen to your dad. No, I'm kidding. Don't listen to anybody that tells you otherwise, if this is what you know in your heart, you were meant to do. A hundred percent. I mean, I also... <laughs> I remember also like during all of that time when I was training and, and in undergraduate and graduate school, there were certain moments where they were, they would bring in someone who was a famous person, a well-known television or theater or, or film actor to like talk to us. And I remember mm-hmm. it being so shocking because in both instances, I, I, I remember two instances specifically, and I won't mention who the actors are. But there was so much of like this talk of like, if you can imagine yourself doing anything, anything else, else, do it and now. And be happy. Go do it. Go yeah. do it right yeah. now. Right yeah. now. Walk out of the room yeah. and do it now. And I was just like, <laughs> I remember being in the room, hearing them say that and say like, how dare you? How dare you talk yes. to these actors like this? How dare you talk to me like yes. that? Mm-hmm. Like there is nothing that's going to stop me from doing this. I would rather starve. I would rather die alone. I would rather expire than stop doing this. And like, how dare you tempt me with stopping? How dare you Mm. try to place your uh, resentment about the industry Mm. in Mm. this moment where you are responsible for sharing your experience with us, right? I want to hear how you got through it. I don't want to hear how hard it is, right? I mean, I don't mind hearing how hard it is, but I want to hear what you did to get through it. You know, tell me your solutions. Don't talk to me about the problem. So that was like the worst advice I ever got, you know, from those people. But yeah, but I remember also like, you know, even once I finished graduate school, you know, and was like, I moved to New York after graduate school and was, and was auditioning for Blue Man Group during that time. And that was a, a four month audition process where I didn't know what I was doing. And it was only a week at a time each month. And so I was kind of responsible. You know, I had to figure out what I was doing with my life in between those times. And they were like non-communicative during that time. They wouldn't call and say like, Hey, we're still thinking about you. Get ready. We're going to do it again next month. You know, none of that stuff. So I was just in New York trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself. And I worked in a restaurant for one night and 
that's the only restaurant job I've ever had. <laughs> you was. I was. A, I was a. I was, I was such a weakling. I was like. <laughs> I worked as a busser at the Russian Firebird on 36th between 8th and 9th. Oh my God. <laughs> and I didn't know how to be a waiter and I didn't know how to be a busser. And nobody would talk to me because the waiters were all actors and they didn't want to talk to me because I was a busser. And the bussers were all from another country and didn't speak a lot of English. So nobody, none of them talked to me. Cause... <laughs> and so I was just like, I didn't know what I was doing. And I poured water on like six people and through roll you're supposed to pick the rolls up with two giant spoons and like place them on the plate and i was like throwing them all over the place and it was a nightmare and the woman who ran the place was super mean to me and i called her the next day and was like i'm not coming back and she was like well what are you going to do for money and i said i'd rather starve than do this none of your business lady yeah 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 and i was just like now you're concerned and i was like i'll figure it out and i was scared you know like I mean, we, you know, there's, there's more to tell about the experience of getting to New York, but I spent the night on the subway with my bags, like not knowing mm. where I was going to sleep. You yeah. know, I was yeah. wow. technically homeless for a handful of days in New York city. Man, yeah. you love acting. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you hate yeah. restaurants. And I hate restaurants. <laughs> Ray Hall, tell us what Blue Man Group is in case people don't know. Let's yeah. we're going to talk about it. Yeah, so Blue Man Group is a um, uh, a multimedia uh, performance where you have three characters with blue heads who uh, attempt to interact with the audience to create a connectivity experience. Mm-hmm. And what that what that looks like is they use um, music and super kinetic visuals. Like for example, we have big drums that have a light inside of them. We put paint on top of the drums and play the drum so it's color flying in the air. Um, it's, an, it's a kinetic artistic experience for the audience and an interactive experience for the audience. We actually go out into the audience and bring people up on stage and interact with them. We like mm-hmm. bring a woman up on stage and eat Twinkies with her. And um, the character is non-human, but from somewhere, we don't know where, uh, they don't speak. Um, and they don't have any facial expressions. It's all neutral mask. It's inspired. The character mask is inspired by Buster Keaton, the deadpan clown uh, face. So, and just to sort of close the loop on the description of the show, you joined it a few years into its run. Yeah. And it, it was a very successful, um, uh, popular piece of theater. Yeah. In, in 1995, they opened a show in Boston. And in 1990, or 1996, they opened a show in Boston. And in 1997, I believe, or maybe early 98, they opened a show in Chicago. Um, and then in 2000, they opened in Vegas. And then I believe in 2002, they opened in Berlin. Uh, and then they had a show in Japan. They had a show in Oberhausen, Germany. They had a show in Amsterdam and then multiple touring shows as well. So it did become sort of a global phenomenon in a way. Um, and then there were also TV commercials and there yeah, were... TV commercials. And then they had, yeah. And, and then there was a rock tour where we were doing an arena tour that was more, I would say the original version of the show is like 90% theater, 10% music. And the rock show was 90% music, 10% theater. Yeah. So I was hired in 1998. And uh, so I was like, I think I figured out that I'm like the 17th blue man of mm. like, there are 60 worldwide, I believe. So I was number 17, <laughs> I think, or 16. And um, yeah, so I was shipped out to Chicago uh, in the fall of 1998, and I was there for four years. That was my first city. I, I grew up in the New York City metro area, and I still remember the Blue Man Group commercials. Yeah, and it was such a phenomenon. Like, everybody was like, have you seen Blue Man Group yet? Like, you know, it was a thing. So you had a contact who told you, Hey, this might be a good gig. And you had never, you're, you're not a musician. You're a lot of things at this point, but you're not a musician. When I was in graduate school, there was a guy who was two years ahead of me, uh, an actor named Pete Simpson. Bless you, Pete Simpson. If you were listening, man, you are one of the great influences of my life. This guy is a phenomenal performer. One of the most interesting performers I've ever seen in my life. So anyway, Pete Simpson had gotten hired for blue man and he called me and was like, Hey man, these guys are looking for people you have the right height because you had to be five ten to six feet and height weight proportional because they want the characters to look the same on stage. Um, and he said, you know, if you learned how to play the drums, you might be able to get this job. So he taught me drum patterns from the show over the phone. 
And then he also told me like what sticks to get, what books to get. I got this book called Stick Control for the Snare Drummer. That's like a rudiment book. <laughs> and from midnight to 2 a.m. for the last eight months of my time in graduate school, I practiced playing drums on a pillow in one of the studios. Yeah. Every night, eight, midnight to 2 a.m. every night. Because I would do a full day of classes and then rehearsals or shows. And then after that, I would go into the studio with my sticks and my books and do my rudiments and just keep wow. working. And I got over that eight months, got good enough to get through the audition process. Cause the drumming audition was significant as a significant part of the audition process. You're like, check out my paradiddles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Drum nerd yeah. joke. Yeah. Good job. And you good you job. applied yourself along those lines, Michael, because you felt like this was a dream job or were you like, oh, what am I going to totally. do once I get out of school? Uh, this show seems like it's going to do well. Like, were you afraid or yeah. were you like, no, this show specifically is what I want to do or what, what was it at the time? All of the above. I was super scared. What the hell am I going to do? Pete Simpson told me this job is the highest paid off-Broadway gig. And at the time it mm. was, these guys were making, I think starting pay for a blue man at that time was $900 a wow. week. Whoa. Um, yeah. Which is huge for an off-Broadway show. It was a, a non-union off-Broadway gig. And uh, yeah, and that's 1998. Wow. So that was like, more like than I was totally... making at Merrill Lynch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was great money. Right. So I was just like, this, this is it. It's all, I've got to put all my, effort into this and so i went to new when we did our showcase in new york the casting director from blue man came and saw the showcase and i got a call back from that i came in and did this crazy audition where they gave me what they call cheesy bald cap which is this really cheap bald cap that was like um one you would buy at a costume store it's like a rubber thing where you pull it over your head and stick your face in a hole and it even i remember it even had a mole right here to, to look realistic <laughs> and you had to like just look at the camera they would just point a video like a really cheap like um you know like micro digital eight <laughs> camera at you and just say like they they had you uh attempt to keep your face neutral but express through your eyes a transition from through four uh points of view wow. what is that oh shit wait it's changing something wonderful is going oh to happen. My God. So you had to go through all four of those things with just this being the only thing, you know, just the mask from my nose to my eyebrows being able to be the thing to express wow. it. So you're trying to uh, imply an emotional arc from not knowing through discomfort into being excited about what's wow. happening. Yeah. And that was like basically the basic arc of, arc of the character in every interaction. Right. Where he's questioning good news, quest questioning bad news, questioning good news, questioning bad news, questioning good news, just over and over and over. And that's kind of a whole show. For those of you listening, if you want to be a part of Blue Man Group, work on your ability to convey question, bad news, question. Good news. But also, if you're, if you're listening, you really <laughs> just make sure you're about 5'10", 5'11". Also. Yeah, 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 yeah. So is that, is that forgive my naivete, but is that a form, like where was the clowning how did clown happen? And was it, have we already talked about that? And I just don't know it. No. Okay. Um, no, my, my introduction to clowning came from one of the guys I was training with for blue man group. Uh, this guy named Jonathan Taylor, who is still out there. He's one of the um, most well wrecked. He and his wife have a, a cabaret act called honeymoon cabaret. They also call it uh, married with bananas and they also call themselves the daredevil chicken club. So they operate under any one of those three names. <laughs> he was, a clown. Uh, he never went to college. He was. He started out doing magic, and then he went to the Del Arte School for Physical Theater, which is uh, Northern California. And um, from there, he got a. He went to Ringling Brothers Clown College, which Whoa. no longer exists. Uh, so he went to Clown College um, and toured with Ringling Brothers as a clown for I think two years, uh, living on the train and doing all the crazy weird Whoa. shit that they do living. I almost certainly saw him. I almost certainly yeah, me saw too. him. We saw every Ringling me Brothers too. show. My dad was like a huge fan. Anytime they came through. Then you we definitely saw him. Saw yeah, me him. Too. So he and I were both shipped out to the Chicago show from New York after we finished training, uh, kind of at the same time. And his closest friend and clown partner from Ringling Brothers, uh, a guy named Voki Kalfayan, 
was living in Chicago and working as a barista. And Voki created the character gazillionaire that I currently play today in the absence show. So that's like how I met Voki was through Jonathan and like hanging out with those two guys in Chicago. You know, I was like still an actor, really interested in alternative forms of theater, wanting to do, you know, Richard Foreman plays or do Wooster group stuff, you know, do alternative stuff. And um, then I started seeing these two guys, they would do lots of performance stuff sort of outside of Blue Man. Uh, The two of them would perform together just in character with like weird costumes and just doing totally insane, almost sort of jackass level, performance art level, you know, (laughs) self-immolative, you know, like interactions with the audience where they would come out bruised and battered and like the audience would have been taken on a ride where they were just like losing their fucking mind at the end of the experience. And I remember watching those guys perform and I was like, fuck all of this. I want to be one of those guys. Mm. And then through them, I got introduced to sort of the world of like clown workshops. There are clown workshops all over the place. I went and lived in Toronto for three months and studied with a woman named Sue Morrison, um, who teaches uh, what she calls clown through mask. And the, the point of view, her, her style is linked to Native American traditions of clown or the trickster character or the, the Hayoka, they call them, um, which were, uh, you know, a, a, a person who lived in each community and their job was to teach people how not to act by acting like idiots. So there would be a religious, there would be a religious um there'd be a religious ceremony happening and the Hayokas would be shitting, taking a shit somewhere like off to the side or, or making fun of it, dancing around, acting like idiots. They would ride their horses backwards. They would, they would, uh, uh, they were often transgendered people. They would, uh, you know, or, or, uh, you know, they would just cross dress like men would wear women's clothing. And it was just about embracing the fact that there is a person who, uh, does not have the connection with reality that the rest of us do. And the point of view of that person is not that they were an idiot. It was that they were magic. Ah. And they had a very weighty and important place in society. <clears throat> and that's how it's been with clowns from the beginning of time. You know, that they, they exist. They, they have a necessary role in society, which is to remind us that we're stupid and beautiful and ridiculous mm. and perfect all at once Mm. to be able to laugh at our own beauty and ridiculousness. That was how she would put it to the point where the audience either loves you or hates you or both, or they cycle back and forth between those two things. You lose them, you get them back, you lose them, you get them back. Like that's the game that Jonathan and Voki were playing when they performed. They would do shit that was so insane that the audience would hate them. And then all of a sudden they would find a way to grovel in a way that was like really funny and make the audience love them again. But then they would grovel so hard and take it so far that the audience would hate them. (laughs) It was incredible. It was incredible. And that's what Voki does with Gazillionaire just over and over and over. Can you tell me, you've mentioned Gazillionaire a couple of times and I know that Cassidy knows what that is and I don't. Oh yeah. Sorry. The Gazillionaire is the, is the, is the character that I play at, Caesar's Palace right now. And it was created by Voki Kalfayan. Um, and Gazillionaire is the host of a circus cabaret show. So it's like a variety show with burlesque acts and circus acts. So Gazillionaire as a character is the, 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 the conceit of absence. The show is that the Gazillionaire is the owner of the show, the producer of the show, the boss. And he comes out at the beginning to say hello to the audience before the show starts and to introduce and, and outro the performers. Uh, but Gazillionaire is a super rich guy who is super jaded and he's misogynistic and racist and he hates everybody. And all he wants to do is take the piss out of you. And um, he, he rides the line, you know, I mean, the goal is, you know, he's pushing these buttons at the audience to make them, uh, to, to shine a light on how stupid the divisions are between us by highlighting the divisions between us. And I mean, it's like crowd work with a roasting element. And so what we do basically is 
Gazillionaire, Wanda, the, the assistant, introduces Gazillionaire. I come out to say hello, but get distracted by playing with people in the audience. Oh, look at these Republicans. You guys look like you fucked on a pontoon boat. That's exciting. <laughs> that kind of stuff. So then she and I have interactions as well, and then it culminates in us sort of um, introducing the first act. And then over the course of the show, we intro and outro the act, have a relationship with the audience that's kind of created in real time based on that first kind of 10 minutes that we have with them. And we play on those relationships over the course of the show. And um, that's what Gazillionaire is. And and Michael, Gazillionaire is really different from the Blue Man character. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, whereas Blue Man is, you know, fundamentally a not, well, Blue Man is a nonverbal character, no facial expressions. It's essentially neutral mask. Whereas Gazillionaire is Commedia, which is a, a character mask where you're making a lot of faces and it's very broad. I'm on stage with a microphone in a tuxedo. My hair is greasy and combed over to one side. I'm wearing fake teeth with a gold tooth in front. The teeth. I've seen this on Instagram. (laughs) One big one. Yeah, the teeth are kind of oversized in the front, which is a a theatrical form, right? It's Mm -hmm. a form of a mask, Mm -hmm. right? As mask work goes, masks can be huge. Masks can be small. And I know this is another digression, but I love talking about this shit. So I'm going to get into it. (laughs) Get it. Masks can be full body masks. Masks can be objects that you hold. Masks can be full face masks. Masks can be as small as a red dot at the tip of your nose, hair gel, uh, or just fake teeth, right? The clown nose itself is a mask. What it does effectively is two things. It changes how the audience perceives your face or your body. Uh, it changes the context. It can, it can alter the perception of you in real time as far as context goes. Like, for example, if I'm telling you a story of uh, how I used to love someone, and how she broke up with me, and then I hold a gun and tell the same story, that's a mask, right? It totally Mm. changes how you Mm. perceive that story. Mm. Um, So with the teeth, it changes how you perceive me. I look more like an idiot because I have these oversized teeth. I look grotesque. Does that make sense? Yes. When you say these, these the terminology you're using, idiot, um, grotesque, I just, because I, if I didn't know this, I, I wouldn't, under, I don't think I would know unless I knew that these are this is vocab in the context of these art forms, right? Not and just like you're not just calling someone an idiot in the way that my brother called me an idiot growing up. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. That's absolutely the truth. Yes, those yeah, those those are being an idiot and being grotesque in clown and buffon are virtue. They're not mm. um they're not <laughs> words that we use to to harm, yeah, pejorative, to harm someone or to shame them in any way. It's like, like when I am in a clown workshop and the teacher says, my God, you're such an idiot. Like that, I mean, I feel so happy and like my heart <laughs> swells with pride. <laughs> so Michael, the, the life in the theater, a career in theater is a career of, I want, I want to talk I have two sort of questions. The first is just fundamentally, can you fire off once a show is up and running and you're performing it? What does your day look like? How does that work? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I can say that when I started, um, especially Blue Man Group and Absence both, in the first probably six to eight months, uh, I don't really have on show days, I don't really have much of a life. My whole day is really geared toward being prepared for the show um, making sure I'm rested enough, I've eaten enough, uh, uh, I'm physically prepared, I'm, you know, I have, you know, whatever loose ends I need to tie up, uh, and, and generally like attempting to just chill as much as possible so that I can really have a full tank when I get there to the show. Because when I was learning the show, I just needed everything that I had. Like each, in each instance, I was totally at the bleeding edge of my capacity as a performer when it came to like learning how to do the show and being able to show up and be present at the level that is required in these performance contexts. So my whole day was just kind of geared toward that. But, you know, two years in, even a year in, you start that, that starts to relax a little bit and you start having a life. And I can say, you know, now with Gazillionaire, I'm in my third year of doing the show. Um, and, and, you know, with Blue Man Group too, many, many years into it, it, it was whatever I, I could have totally have a life and go in and do a show. It was no big deal. Um, with Gazillionaire, I still am a little careful, um, as to like how much energy I expend during the day before I have to do a show. Uh, 
mainly for a, a couple of reasons. One, because I'm a little bit older, you know, I'm not 25 anymore and energy conservation is really a big part of my, of my life now. And, um, mainly, but primarily because that show, the gazillionaire character and the interactions with the audience, it's all real time. There's, there's no script. There's no roadmap. Um, I have to absolutely be 100% totally present and awake and sharp as a tack for the entire experience. I cannot phone in a single minute of that performance, um, whether I want to or not. So I have to like totally have my head on straight when I walk into the place. So I have on show days, very specific rituals that kind of get me to the, to the spot where I'm ready. So it's like making sure I get enough sleep. You know, I don't, I mean, I don't drink anymore, but, um, you know, I used to not drink before show days, you know, because I knew if I was hungover, it would be harder. Or I would not be as present, uh, making sure I eat enough food, making sure I'm eating the right foods, recognizing that like eating lots of sugar during the day is going to put me in a headspace that's not conducive to me being as sharp as I can possibly be. And like, you know, and again, like all of this is, is geared toward being of service to the show right? Like that's the most important thing for me. And I learned that very early on. I remember Denny Dalen, my first sort of long-term acting teacher when I was an undergraduate, um, saying to me, like, your only responsibility as an actor is to serve the show. You're not the star. I don't care if you have the most lines. I don't care if you have the most stage time. I don't care if all the lights are pointed at you all the time. I don't care if you're the only person anybody ever talks to after the show to tell you how awesome you are. None of that matters. Your only responsibility is to be early, show up on time, be ready, and be of service to the show to the best of your ability. Make sure that all your scene partners look as good as they can look. Make sure that you are listening as hard as you can listen, that you are as present as you can possibly be. And it's like, that's been the game for me the entire time. And that goes to my second question, which is that you have spent most of your career repeating so one of the things that those of us who are drawn toward film and TV like about it is that we get to play a new character. We get to do a new scene. Once you do the scene, it goes away forever. And one of the things about all live theater is that if it's successful, you do the same thing, the same show, the same beats over and over again. Gazillionaire's a little bit different, but it's probably more similar to live theater than, than not. Um, so how do you how do you do the same how do you tell the same story night after night after night for years and years and years? Yeah, with Blumen Group specifically, it's it's really interesting because that show, in a way, even though there is an improvisational element and there are audience interactions and the audience is the ultimate variable, they always bring something new to the experience. Um, that show's kind of on rails. The the that part of it, attempting to be super present each time was for me the most fun part of it. And it became, you know, and, and there are little things you can do to kind of keep it fresh. But one of the things that is inherent about that show that makes all that very easy is that, you know, you learn multiple tracks. So I know all three characters. And that means that any night over the course of a week, I'll be jumping back and forth from character to character. So I'm never playing the same character nine shows, 10 shows in a row. It's always changing tracks, which keeps it pretty fresh and challenging. But at the same time, I'm still looking to my left at the same time every night. And yeah, for me, a big part of what it is to, to me to be of service to the show means that I try as much as I possibly can each time I'm on stage to totally be present, regardless of how tired I am, regardless of how hungover I am or how, you know, angry I am at myself or how depressed I am or whatever, because, and, and it's mainly because I want to feel good about how I did it at the end of the day. I want to be able to look back on that career and say, like, I never phoned it in. I never let go of that rope. I never dropped it and drifted. You know, I always swung for the fence to the best of my ability. And like, that's the career that I want. That's the life that I want. I want to be able to say, I hit it as hard as I could at every opportunity. 
and look, that's not to say that I didn't have experiences where I showed up and spaced out. I totally did. Um, and over the years in Blue Man Group specifically, 22 years in, you know, I remember doing an experiment, playing the easiest musical track, seeing how distracted I could make myself as an experiment. <laughs> so the three of us are standing <laughs> at the PVC instrument and I'm just playing bass notes, which is just bam, 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 very, very easy. And I remember seeing if I could push my mind so far adrift that I play a wrong note and I couldn't. <laughs> wow. Because yeah, was... it's just habit. It's just ha- like your your body just does it. Wow. It's funny listening to you. I'm, you're reminding me that like when we, the few times that I've been on a huge film and we shot the same scene for three days in a row, I have found that live theater doing a show, mm-hmm. eight shows a week um, is easier because there's an audience there and I have mm-hmm. an agreement with them that they're going to see this thing that we're doing for the first yeah. time for them. And they're going to inform it. Whereas shooting, it's like, we're now on this guy's close up, and I've already done, I did mine two days ago. Like I'm done, you know, and I'm still here. Um, so it's almost easier. That's the thing too, about, about live theater and that experience that, 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 that I truly believe that's sort of at the core of how I operate for me. And I think this is a very useful thing is that at no point do I ever allow myself to think that I've done the exact most perfect version of this, right? Mm -hmm. Even when I was doing plays where I had lines and it was night after night, I'm having the same scene with a person. There's always deeper to go. There's always, there's an infinite amount of depth to my experience and my ability to be present with this other performer and with the audience. There's always a deeper place to go. At, and as soon as I believe that there's not, it's dead. It's a dead thing, right? If I did have any advice for young actors, just remember that there's always a deeper place to go. There is you, there is, it is impossible for us as human beings to ever totally know ourselves, much less another person. So how could it be possible that we're doing a thing exactly right? There is no such thing. Thank God. Thank God there is no such thing as ever getting it right. I hope I never get it right. So I can always keep drilling and drilling and drilling to find the deeper place inside me that is more accessible to a real-time experience. Um, yeah, so that's what I got to say about that. Oh, that's a perfect way to end it. Thank you, Michael. Guys, that's our show. Thank you, Michael. It was lovely to chat with you. Friends, you can find us on social media at the Actors Helpline. I'm at Michael Cassidy Actor. Laura, what's your Instagram handle? I'm at Holloway underscore EE. Like, Holloway. <laughs> I've never thought Yeah, of. nobody awesome. else has. Just me. That's why I had to sing it for you. <laughs> um, and also, you can leave us a message, a question of your own by going to the website theactorshelpline.com and click on the little mic there. You don't need to fill anything out. It's super easy. Just leave your name and your question and you might hear it on the air. And you guys can go to Caesar's Palace and see Michael play the gazillionaire in the absinthe show. About a third of the shows, right? <laughs> Michael per week. Yeah, yeah. I work Friday to Monday. Uh, and you can find you can find tickets for absinthe at spiegelworld.com. S-P-E-I-G-E-L-W-O-R-L-D.com. Michael, you made me want to go to Vegas. That's not Come something I ever thought I would say ever again in my entire life. I Come was like, through. oh, good. Stay I'm going house. to. I'm going to. I'm. I will. Michael makes Vegas look good, like as a life. <laughs> I want. I can't His house wait is fresh. to see. Yes, yeah. yeah. I have to say the community of performers in Vegas is extremely supportive, and there are a lot yeah. of people out here doing really fun and interesting stuff. It's really wild. I That's bet. awesome. Yeah. Bye, everybody.